We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. Question number one for the month of October. What kind of oil does a CO2 compressor take that's on a bits or rack? Let me know. Send in your answer to ARPgiveaways at gmail.com. And keep listening for more questions. Thank you. John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work. But how are you going to do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporlin's interchangeable cartridge style Type Q and Type BQ uh, TEVs. Type Q is a conventional design and Type BQ is a balance for TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy is one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those to a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. All right, guys, welcome to the Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Compass, and today we're going to talk about how to prevent repeated compressor failures after they've been replaced or you're on a site where there's been multiple compressor failures. So today we're going to go over on some tips and tricks after install 
what I do to in, to keep these compressors from failing. So, first and foremost, guys, compressors don't just go bad. They're usually murdered. So, this is one thing to look out for. You know, if you're changing a compressor, there's a reason it failed. I mean, yeah, there is that occasional, yeah, old age. It get, it's worn out. You know, it's had a hard life, and it finally went. But the majority of these compressors are, are murdered. You know, either by poor system performance, dirty systems, heat. So there, there's a reason this compressor failed. So the days of just slapping in a compressor and just walking away need to go away. Now, I feel this is more like the common on the, you know, ref rack refrigeration side of things because we generally have more capacity. So you lose a compressor. The guy on call, usually, if he's on call, usually valves it off. It never really gets checked into, and it gets quoted. Guy comes back, slaps a compressor in, figures the last guy, you know, looked at why the compressor died, and next thing you know, you know, a couple days later, a couple weeks later, a month later, this compressor's dead again, you know, because the original failure wasn't caught during the, uh, during the commissioning portion of the compressor startup and or the original service call. So guys, this is where it, uh, everybody needs to be a little bit more diligent with this stuff, especially now with how hard it is to even get compressors, you know, so this is when I'm going through and, you know, say we're going to start from when I condemn a compressor. So when I condemn a compressor, yeah, if it's in the middle of the night, I'm not ripping the heads off of it. I'm not tearing it down. You know, I'm going to come back and do it, or I'm going to write up that it needs to get done on the initial teardown. But on the initial service call, you need to be as thorough as possible, you know, to write it up, write up everything that is needed for that compressor change out. So say, like, if you're looking at this thing and the, the oil is just pitch black, so that's one thing I'm like, okay, the oil is completely black in this rack. We need to, you know, take it and we need to, you know, clean up this oil it's 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 a huge problem so like if you see a compressor failure and the oil's black and metallic you know that okay we got met we got metal in the oil the compressor probably broke apart and there's metal in the oil i mean may have not been what killed the compressor but it may have led to its untimely demise so you know going through stuff like that or like looking okay the contactors welded in did the contactor weld in because the compressor you know failed or did it was the contactor the failure point so i see a lot of guys okay yeah the contactor welded in that's what killed the compressor well in all, in all reality it was the uh, stator dropping onto the rotor and or the rotor dropping onto the stator and it shorted out and then caused the contactor to explode so i mean it was a mechanical failure that was mass as an electrical failure the majority of electrical failures, especially shorts and compressors, are mechanical failures. I mean, they're broken rods, broken cranks. I mean, they're, they're drop stators, or drop rotors into stators, damage like that, damage windings. So, I mean, the majority of electrical failures are mechanical failures. That is why it's important to tear these things down. So, I mean, if it's in the middle of the daytime, you know, not on a Friday, I'm going to rip the heads off this compressor, and I'm going to inspect it. You know, I'm going to make sure the pistons all go up and down. I'm going to see if there's any scoring on the walls. I'm going to see if it looks like it ran with uh, liquid refrigerant in it and it scored up the walls of the compressor. So, I mean, in, if it had no lubrication. 
So, I mean, if, if all else fails and it, you know, it runs good and, uh, or I'm sorry, it moves good and moves free and all the pistons move up and down, you know, you don't have a, a broken crank, you know, you don't have broken rods and they're not coming past top dead center. Then, I mean, then look at the valve plates. I mean, do we have smashed up valves? I mean, smashed up valves are, you know, an indication of either a mechanical failure, you mean the piston came in contact with it or the, uh, or the actual, uh, uh, liquid refrigerant smashed the valves or oil smashed the valves. I mean, valve failures are, are generally three things. A mechanical failure in the compressor where the piston came up too high. The liquid refrigerant entered the cylinder or oil entered the cylinder. Too much oil, it can't compress. It can't compress a liquid, so the valve plates are the weakest things. They're going to go hopefully before the the rod bends or you know completely shatters a piston. So that's why to actually check this stuff out is super important because if you open a compressor up and the heads are full of oil, you know you have an oil issue. You know, you have oil carrying over from the rack and making its way back down the system. So, I mean, you need to start looking at the oil system. You know, and if you see all kinds of scarring on the cylinder walls and the, the, there's nothing inside the, the piston, I mean, that could very well be liquid refrigerant, you know, washing away the oil and uh, the piston's dragging on there. You know, if you don't see anything in there and it's got low oil pressure, I mean, pull the oil pump out. Look, look at the main bearing. You know, see how see how scarred up the main bearing is in the sh- in the uh, the crank. You know that that's in- incredibly important. I mean, was this thing not getting good lubr- lubrication? Was it getting uh, liquid in the oil and causing it to you know clean off all the oil on all the bearing surfaces and cause the compressor to fail? So, I mean, that, that's why this initial diagnosis is the most important so you could document it and quote it properly. Because if you just write up a compressor and a contactor and, you know, two guys show up to change this compressor and contactor and now they got to come back and say, oh, yeah, the oil's trash in the rack, there's flood back, the oil separator's blown, uh, filter's blown, and it's not separating oil properly, and that's why the compressor died. You know, the, a customer's more reluctant to do that than just to quote it properly on the first time. Now, I'm very diligent when it comes to the oil system. I mean, if the oil system isn't working properly, I mean, you're going to have oil carryover. Um, say the oil float's stuck closed. I mean, and you're just carrying that oil right out of the bottom of the oil separator right back into the system. Now, this is where you start getting oil return issues. You know, like uh, old guy told me a long time ago, you know, stop trying to chase the oil in the store. Figure out why it's leaving the rack. It shouldn't be leaving the rack. You know, obviously you're going to have some oil leave the rack and go into the store. It's impossible to catch it all. No oil separator is 100% efficient. So this is where you guys need to be diligent about making sure this oil separator is separating properly. And if you have blown valves and you have an older style impingement screen oil separator and your valve plates are gone, they're inside the separator. They more than likely tore the screen in the separator. So if I have blown valve plates or pieces of pistons that are like gone. That that stuff went somewhere, went down the discharge line and into the oil separator and generally tears the sock on the oil separator. So my personal thing is if I have blown valve plates and say I just changed valve plates, I'm going to check the oil separator to make sure it's functioning properly and I'm going to pull it and I'm going to see if the screen's torn. If the screen's torn, it's getting replaced with a uh, centrifugal or a uh, uh, filtered type oil separator. 
I'm not going to put a, a sock back in there. I mean, I, I don't know how some guys get their hands up in there. Like it's almost, I tried it once. It was impossible for me. But I'm going to staple the separator back together for now. So this is the screen, the separator, so that I could get everything back functional. Because if you have a gaping hole in there, the size of your thumb, now you're losing all that uh, that oil through that hole. It's not it's not properly screening that oil. So it's not properly screening that oil and uh, separating all that oil properly. <clears throat> now you get this vicious cycle. Now, now you're endangering other compressors because now that oil is not staying at the rack, it's getting carried out to the system. You know, it's in your liquid lines, it's in your evaporators. And then after defrost, it's going to come back and it's going to end up smashing more valve plates. Um, so, I mean, one, one valve plate can, you know, end up, you know, messing it up for the rest of the rack. So that's why, like, it's imperative that you guys check over these, uh, these oil systems, you know, make sure the filters aren't blown on, uh, coalescent type uh, setups. If you're changing a compressor on a coalescent type setup, you should be changing the filter without a doubt. I a hundred percent without a doubt. That is, you know, one-on-one proper technique in order to keep that rack clean and, uh, keep everything, you know, functioning properly. Because if you have dirty oil and you have a dirty system, I mean, and you're putting a brand new compressor in there. All you're doing is introducing all that dirty oil right to the compressor. And then same thing with uh, checking safeties. So every single safety needs to be verified on that compressor. So the oil safety, we need to check it, make sure it actually shuts off on a low oil condition. So what I'll do generally is I'll uh, shut the breaker off as long as it doesn't have a, a current sensing relay. I'll go over that in a second. I'll shut the breaker off and let make sure it times out. You know, it, it doesn't see the compressor running. It should time out and it should stop that compressor. I mean, I don't know how many old oil controls I found that, you know, either are jumped out. Somebody jumped them out. There was an issue. Somebody jumped them out and now the compressor's dead or, you know, they're just, they just don't function properly anymore. The, the heater burned out of the old Johnson controls or it's an old Centronic that is just, beat up and it's been vibrating for 15 years and now it doesn't function properly well i mean if you just slap that compressor in there and don't test it guess what as soon as that compressor runs out of oil again or there's an oil issue on the rack that thing's gonna be the first one dead because it doesn't shut off so it's just gonna keep running until it burns itself up oh you know a, 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 what three hundred dollar control is gonna you know kill a uh, four or five thousand dollar compressor so that's why it's imperative to make sure like these controls all function properly. Now, if you have one with a uh, current sensing relay, my best advice to you would be to just jump out the relay, you know, so you can test the oil control, so you can shut off the power to the compressor and test the oil control. You know, that way you know that that oil control functions properly. High pressure switches, same thing. You know, I'll throttle down a discharge, make sure the high pressure switch actually works and it doesn't keep the compressor, you know, running at a super high discharge pressure and or it doesn't short cycle the compressor if it's an automatic reset. I've seen this before where it'll just short cycle the compressor. You know, it, it resets like 10 or 15 pounds instead of being 50 pounds. Or it's tripping too early and it's just nonstop machine gunning the compressor till the contactor wears out and then welds in and now the compressor single phases or something blows a breaker. So this is why it's imperative you, you actually check these controls, you know, make sure they shut off what they should be. And then on a single unit, make sure they pump down.
Make sure the unit pumps down on low pressure, shuts off, goes through a defrost, pumps down completely, doesn't short cycle, doesn't high head while it's trying to pump down. I mean, there's been lots of instances where, you know, stuff, especially single units, you know, they get put in with a liquid line solenoid up the unit, you know, the case is, a, you know, 100 feet away, and uh, they try to pump back all that liquid, and the receiver's not big enough. It's just short cycling, and it eventually kills the compressor because every time it goes to pump down, it's high heading. So what you want to do is try to keep that from happening, you know, a suction stop or some other means of uh, control for defrost. And then also make sure that when this thing is defrosting, uh, when you're actually defrosting, make sure that uh, make sure that everything is uh, you know functioning properly, and uh, it's actually defrosting uh, the uh, proper way. <laughs> so just make sure that it it physically pumps down. It doesn't high head. It goes through defrost, and it comes back and make sure that it's not going to overamp after it comes back out of defrost. Just make sure that when it when it comes back out of defrost, it's not going to overamp. It's not going to uh, you know run too high of a pressure on the suction. Maybe it needs a CPR valve or uh, some MOP power heads in there, something to keep it from you know overamping the suction. So that's one thing on single units is that you know verify the unit. Functions completely. It don't just slap the compressor in. Say it's a you know freezer. Okay, it may take like you know almost all day for this thing to pull down. By the time it pulls the concrete down, especially if it's been dead for a while, so I'll generally get it close, and then I'll throw in a defrost. I'll check it out, make sure all the heaters amp out, make sure the drain heater works, make sure all the heaters are good, make sure the fan delay works properly, and then I will turn this thing back on. And make sure it doesn't overamp and make sure they get pumped down completely. Because I see a lot of guys, I see repeated failures with this. They'll throw a freezer compressor in and it'll get down to like 20 degrees and they'll boogie. You know, they got other calls to run, but they didn't check its operation to make sure, you know, it functions and prop properly pumps down in a low pressure switch is bad. And it just keeps going running in a vacuum until, until it blows up. Now, the other caveat to this is um, on the discharge side of it. So high discharge temps probably kill more compressors than anything. So one thing, guys, we need to really pay attention to is discharge temps. So especially on racks, you know, start checking discharge temps of compressors on PMs. You know, if you start seeing compressors with, with higher discharge temps, you know, than others, those compressors probably have an issue. You know, either the suction return gas is warmer on those or their oil floats bleeding through and they're getting some discharge vapor in there or something's causing that compressor to run a higher discharge temp, bad valve plates, uh, more load. So that, that's why it needs to be thoroughly checked out. Now, I'm a big proponent of this Copeland app. The Copeland app has all the COP charts loaded in there so you could use the Copeland mobile app type in your discharge pressure your suction pressure and then your suction temp and it'll spit out what your discharge temp should be within a few degrees now the way it does this is it uses the COP charts it's looking at the compression ratio the heat of compression and it tells you what your discharge line temp should be. If your discharge line temp is way higher than what it says, there's an issue with that compressor, meaning there's some kind of heat getting in there. A lot of times I see failed oil floats. I see oil floats that are constantly feeding oil into the compressor, 
and it's constantly hot. So that's why you don't ever want to have compressors that are full to the top. I mean, you need to check those oil floats, grab it with your hand, especially if it's a high pressure system, grab it with your hand and see if that if that oil float is smoking hot. If it's smoking hot, then you know that you're feeding oil into that compressor when it shouldn't. So with low pressure, it's a little more difficult, but that compressor is also going to end up getting killed because it's going to overfill with oil and that crank's smacking the oil. Eventually, that's going to break the crank. You know, it's you figure something rotating 3,500 RPMs around, it's hitting a surface. Well, oil and water is like concrete when you hit it that hard. So, you know, it's going to eventually cause something to break. So that's one thing you want to make sure that you actually, the oil levels are proper. You know, they're not overfilling. They're not underfilling. So you want to make sure you're not injecting in there. But then also you want to make sure the liquid injection works. So if you have Y1037 valves, you know, say you're on compound cooling racks and you have Y1037 valves, even if it's not hot enough to use it, test it. You know, get a heat gun. You know, warm up the bulb a little bit. I see these bulbs break all the time because they're not exactly run the best and, the way the rack's designed, it's kind of hard to make the bulb, you know, not vibrate. So, I mean, the bulbs end up breaking a lot. And I see a lot of, uh, you know, compound compressors where they the Y10s don't work. And the compressors are just overheating on the interstage. There's no de-superating no de valve on there. So, the y, the y valves need to be, you know, tested. So, the easiest way to do it if, it, if the discharge temp's too low, is just take a heat gun and run it up and down there a little bit, you know, get it warmed up, you know, get it up to, you know, whatever the discharge should be, put a temp sensor right there, just keep the heat gun moving, and uh, it should start feeding. If it doesn't start feeding, take the bulb off, heat, heat it up with a heat gun big time, see if it starts feeding. If it doesn't, the bulb's probably dead, or the liquid dryer's plugged up feeding it. And you could just change the bulb on these, you know, get a new valve, take the power head off, and just screw the power head on. You generally don't have to burn it out. It's just two pins and an orifice, and a power head, so there's not really much to go wrong with the valve body itself. It's usually just the power head that breaks. You also change out the power head. You know, you do that, and you do a couple of these, and you would be surprised how much the discharge temps in the rack come down, you know, as a whole, because you're fixing the liquid injection and bringing down the, the superheat on the actual rack. So it brings down the discharge superheat, so everything starts, you know, functioning better. The condenser is bigger now because it has less discharge temp you know, to de-superheat. So, I mean, little things like this make big impacts on the system. You know, and then making sure the vapor injection, if you have vapor-injected compressors, is working. So, like, compound compressors. Making sure that the subcooler is functioning properly and not flooding back. I see a lot of compressors get killed because the interstage floods back, whether it be a spoil and superheat controller with a bad temp sensor, um, wrong refrigerant in the controls, or you say you have OEM controls, they got you're controlling it, and you just bad superheat settings, burned up EEVs or uh, TXVs not set properly, and you you start flooding back on the interstage. Well, that's going directly into the heads of a compressor or the inner scroll of a compressor. So if you start flooding back on that. I mean, you're going to bust valve plates big time. So I see a lot of compound compressors, valve plates get busted because of subcooler issues. And then I see guys valve the subcoolers off. And then that's another issue because that's setting your interstage pressure. It's And that's also um, you know, affecting your superheat at the rack. So it's going to raise your discharge temp because now that interstage is not at 40 degrees. 
or 50 degrees, it's at like 80 or 90 degrees. So that's going to increase your discharge temps. So once you increase your discharge temps, now your condenser's smaller. So now your condenser can't keep up. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And then scrolls, same thing. You want to make sure that you're not having liquid come in the interstage of the scroll. Because if you're having liquid come in the interstage of the scroll, you're going to have broken uh, scroll plates, oil issues. I have seen scrolls pump straight liquid through the economizer line. And I'm talking like they sound like weed whackers. And usually it's a, it's a, it's a subcooler issue. And what will happen is it will wash all the oil out of the oil separator and you'll actually have liquid in the discharge. Telltale sign for that is if you start having oil issues and you go up there and your subcooler looks like it's working, but your discharge temps are low, like 120, 100 degrees, like you probably have liquid go move through, moving through the economizer line. So, and if you have oil fails on top of that, you definitely probably have liquid moving through there. So, I mean, you can go through there. Sometimes it won't frost, guys. I mean, if that EPR is set at 50 degrees and it's putting pure liquid in there, you're not going to have frost at a 50 degree EPR or a 40 degree EPR. So you could flood back without having frost. Like just like it's why it's so imperative to check superheat. So you need to physically make sure that there's no flood back on there. Check the superheat on there. Just because it has no frost on it doesn't mean anything. It could be chugging straight liquid through that economizer line and uh, cause failures. Um, digital compressors. So the digital scrolls, I see a ton of these fail because guys will replace them and say the the original, say it's a protocol, and the original uh, unloader was into the suction header and not into the head of the compressor. And these guys just reuse the unloader solenoid coil or the unloader solenoid. And generally, the, a lot of times they stick. And when they stick, it ends up basically separating the scroll plates all the time and the compressor just runs and overheats until it's dead. So always, always, always on a digital scroll, change the solenoid and repipe it to the actual like proper way that the uh, Copeland has it now where it comes off the suction and then it goes to the top of that scroll plate on the head. So you want to change that. Do not reuse the solenoid coil that's in there. And then verify when you order this that it, does come with it because I've seen it hit or miss. Some some racks come with it, some racks don't come with it. So you need to verify that you know that scroll is that that scroll compressor is actually coming with the solenoid kit. And if not, you need to order it because somebody will go to change it and they won't have the solenoid kit and then they just wasted a bunch of labor because generally you got to pull this thing back out to do it because there's usually no room to brace one in. Um, digital compressors I mean, guys, if you see like OMB stuck or failed or I mean, you got to remember that's the only oil control it has. So, I mean, with OMBs, I mean, if the oil's black, that magnet and the the, heat, uh, the switch inside of it is probably all plugged up. So it's really not reliable at that point. So you need to pull them apart and clean them. So take them off, take brake cleaner, you'll flush them out real good. Make sure they're good. Make sure they function properly. So what I'll generally do on a PM is I'll shut the oil line off. And uh Hey guys, today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries Serviceable Oil Floats. Many oil separators contain an oil float to effectively meter separated oil back to the compressors. Westermeyer Industries has taken this concept and perfected it.
with their new line of serviceable oil floats. These floats feature an improved design with fewer components, allowing for greater manufacturer consistency and up to 20% increased oil flow versus their legacy models. These floats also feature an integrated magnet to shield the oil path from debris and have been field proven in supermarket applications. Westmeyer Industries offer replacement oil floats not only for their own separators, but also cross compatible models for our competitor oil separators as well. You can find out more about the Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats by visiting westermeyerind.com backslash floats. Once again, that's westermeyerind.com slash float. Let's get on with the episode. Hello, guys. This episode is brought to you by Fieldpiece. The tough wireless vacuum gauge MG44 from Fieldpiece is engineered to give you the reliable reading you need and the ease that you want. Confidently measure vacuums with a reliable leak-proof seal. The MG44 can be used with the JobLink system app from up to 1,000 feet away. This easy-to-read backlit LCD offers a graphical representation of the vacuum progress even in low light or at odd angles. Visit www.fieldpiece.com for information or follow us on social media at Fieldpiece Products. Thanks again and enjoy the episode. I'll starve all the compressors for oil and I'll watch them. Once they get low, they should start, you know, fill a couple times and they should lock out. And if they don't, then I'll look at that one compressor and, you know, I'll, I'll leave the oil line valve off and see how low it gets and see how if it doesn't lock out. I see a lot of guys miss this on PMs and or checking compressors. You know, a bad OMB could kill a compressor easy. There's no oil switches on these. So that, that is your only oil failure. So there's no oil pump on a scroll. So if you don't have that OMB working properly, you're going to lose oil. And then a lot of times on these protocols, guys, the, the high pressure switches, they're very cheap Robert Shaw, like high pressure switches. And what happens over time is you start to be able to move the, the plastic top of it. If, if you see where the pressure switch is, you know, goes down to the quarter inch adapter, you got the brass and then you got the plastic on top and then you got your two spade fittings. You start to be able to move that plastic and what happens is it makes a bad connection and it'll start machine gunning contactors. If you see contactors machine gunning, probably eight out of ten times, it's the high pressure switch causing it. So what happens is it, it starts to fail and then... It starts to have bad contacts, and it starts machine gunning contactors until it blows a contactor up. I mean, it may start that compressor 10 times in a minute. So, I mean, you're just adding starts to that. And then same thing, guys, making sure that the EMS is programmed properly and the, the digital compre compressor is programmed properly. I still, to this day, see OEMs sending out rack programs with 0 to 10 volts for, like, digital scrolls instead of 1 to 5. So make sure it's actually programmed properly. You know, that, that compressor, I see them get written up all the time and it's a bad IDCM or it's a bad or it's got the wrong voltage in there. You know, make sure that that thing is programmed properly to that rack and make sure that that IDCM is wired properly and working properly. You know, if you get uh, motor protector trips, generally that's for, you know, over amping or you get a, uh, uh, 
switched uh, leg. I mean, generally somebody changed a contactor and you know the the you know, they switched the leg around on you. So then that, that that's a diagnostic tool, but it's not a hundred percent you know accurate. Just like if it uh, goes off on overamping, it doesn't have the set you know amps for that compressor in there. It just has a max threshold that those scrolls should pull. So that's one thing to just keep in mind, guys. You know, and before you condemn a compressor or look at it, make sure that that uh, IDCM is functioning properly. Make sure that it's giving out the voltage, and you don't need to order an IDCM when you change the compressor. So that's another you know big thing. And then with those compressors, especially, make sure that solenoid isn't stuck because I've seen that solenoid kill more compressors than anything. And then if you look in there and that oil's black and the rest of the compressors, don't just slap that digital in and not get that oil cleaned up. If you don't clean up that oil, you're going to have another compressor fail. <clears throat> you're going to have another failure, whether it be from the oil uh, eating up the bearings or it's going to be from metal shavings. So what I'll generally do is, you know, new rack cores, I'll throw the Sporlin uh extra filter that goes in the new uh, liquid core cartridges in there. That thing cleans up racks really good. New suction cores and then SF283 oil filters, uh, suction filters for oil filters. You know, I'll do those a couple times because they're a lot cheaper than an OF303. And they seem to catch a lot of the bigger, you know, the, the smaller stuff a little better at first. And then I'll throw an OF303 in after everything's done and cleanup's done. So... The SF283s are generally cheaper and easier to get right now. Uh, some of the OF stuff has been kind of harder to get. So SF283s are a good alternative. Hussman sent them out in racks for years. And then they finally started switching over to the OF303s. So after you get the cleanup done, I mean, it's imperative that you get the rack cleaned up, do a couple oil changes if you need to, you know, flush out the oil, get everything cleaned up, you know, Put a couple gallons of fresh POE in there, and get the get the protocol cleaned up. You know, clean the valves up. Figure out what's going on. Check your discharge temps. I don't like to see discharge temps over 200 degrees. You start seeing stuff over 200 degrees. You have a 407A, 407F, 448's not as bad, but I mean you're going to have discharge temps that high. But you know, try to get them down. If you're super heated at the racks high, it's going to cause high discharge temps. Or if you have, say, an oil float stuck on the oil separator and it's just dumping hot gas in the rack into the suction header that's increasing your superheat so you need to fix that problem yeah it's stuck open thank god it's stuck open and not closed but eventually that's going to cause the superheat to increase in the rack so that's where like checking the discharge temps comes in you know that that's where it's going to give you that baseline of what everything should be if you start getting discharge temps 230 240 six inches off the compressor you're cooking that oil whether it's POE, mineral, you're cooking that oil. If it's mineral oil, it's going to be 10 times worse. So keep the discharge temps down. Keep the compressors from failing. They say the majority of compressors fail from high discharge temps. And if you pull a head off a compressor and you look at it and it's, you know, the valve plates are all copper looking, that is a telltale sign of acid and water in the rack because that's called copper plating. Copper plating will get on all the surfaces, bearings, uh, valve plates, you name it, and it will start to mess up the tolerances because now it won't seal properly because that copper plating is there and causing everything not to seal properly. 
So that's why it's imperative that if you do have that, you start an acid cleanup on the rack. Start putting acid cores in, put some liquid cores in the suction that are acid rated so that way all that suction return gas and oil can go through those cores and get cleaned up. Do an oil change on the rack. You got to get that oil out of there because the majority of that water is sitting in that oil. So it's harder to get the water out of the oil using filters. So dump the oil, fresh oil in, you know, it's clean and it's not acidic. So do it a couple times till you get that oil, this acid level down and then send out your, your uh, oil, you know, to have it tested at a professional lab to tell you what your moisture percentage is. It may take you a while to clean up that rack, but that water got in there somehow. So is it bad service, you know, procedures or is the rack running in a vacuum at times or is the liquid lines or the uh, main low pressure switch in the rack not working and it's letting things run in a vacuum when it's in switchback i mean that that stuff that needs to get checked i mean i we had that situation in the store the low pressure switch or the uh, transistor failed the building controls monitoring people forced the ra- the rack transducer all the compressors were running cases were making temp cycling off and the low pressure switch was bad at the rack and it was just running all the compressors all the time. The thing was running like a three, four inch vacuum and the damage was done at that point. The side glass was yellow. We had valves locking up every couple days. We had to dump hot water on them. It took us a straight month to get this rack cleaned up, you know, with uh, putting liquid cores, acid cores in, moisture cores, uh, cores in the liquid lines, changing the oil a couple times to get the moisture down to like a acceptable level to where we could start, you know, combating it, you know, you know, monthly, not every single day. You know, it, it took us a long time to get it cleaned up, but all over a bad low pressure switch. So that's, you know, some things you guys just got to keep in mind. That's why it's imperative when you're changing these compressors to go through the whole rack and make sure everything's functioning properly. Uh, do you have flood back at random times? Uh, after a defrost, are you coming back to the rack hard? I see this a lot at stores where um, big POS coils and they have two suction stop valves. They have a small valve and a big valve. So the small valve is to pump the coil out. You generally like a half inch or five eighths valve. And what you do with that is you're energizing that valve first for a set amount of time. So say when it calls for refrigeration again, it's going to say for five minutes, I'm going to pump this coil out with a small valve. So what this does is two things. It doesn't overload the rack and bring out a bunch of compressors and it pumps out the coil. So if there is any liquid in there, it's a small amount coming back through a five eighth solenoid instead of a two and an eighth solenoid and causing compressors to break. So it's more controlled to a five eighth solenoid. I see these not functioning, bad time delays or jumped out all the time. So then you have this two and an eighth valve kicking in and now you have this coil that was full of cool gas defrost or it was off time and there's a ton of liquid in there. It's just all rushing back to the rack at once and it's just blowing apart valve plates or compressors. So this is a big thing. Make sure that pump out system functions properly. You know, after defrost, it's a huge load. So if you're graphing out the suction temperature on the rack and you see, okay, I see a spike way down, you know, say the suction saturation is supposed to be 20 degrees. We're running a constant 40, 45 degrees, 25 degrees of superheat. Rack looks good. Then all of a sudden it just dips right down to like 
20 degrees and then dips up and then it does it again 20 degrees dips up well if you overlay defrost times you could probably figure out which one is causing that and you'll repair that you know issue fix the defrost termination fix the defrost times fix the pump out whatever it is i mean that that's that goes for smaller stuff too it doesn't take a very big coil to you know load up with liquid and you know wash a rack out so that's why it's imperative you know check those suction temps make sure there's not random floodback on this rack just because it kills one compressor on the rack every single time doesn't mean that it's just the way that the header's piped. Maybe that, that compressor is a little bit lower in the header and it's getting more oil and liquid into it. Maybe it's the way they drilled the, the pickup tube inside of it. It's, you know, getting more liquid and oil. So, I mean, figure out, don't try keep trying to figure out why that compressor keeps dying. Figure out what's killing that compressor and take that out, out of the equation. So, I mean, I've ripped apart headers before to try to see, you know, what the issue was, why one compressor kept dying, and uh, it ended up being, a, it, the oil separator was trashed. So, we kept trying to figure out why this one compressor kept getting killed with oil, you know, it kept getting slugged and slugged and slugged. Well, in all reality, the oil separator was trashed, and if we just kept the oil at the rack and fixed that, then we wouldn't have this compressor that you know kept getting oil coming back down to it it just depends on how the way the racks pipe let's just be honest none of this field piping is you know perfect um none of it's you know 100 percent to spec it's never is that way so you know if you keep the the liquid out of the compressors if you keep the oil at the rack you know these compressors are going to be way they're going to end up lasting way longer so I'm not a big fan of changing compressors, so I will spend more time to properly diagnose this than to change it again. Some compressor manufacturers are a little more lenient on it. Like Copeland, in 12 years, I've seen them deny two warranty compressors. Uh, Bitzer is like every other one. So, I mean, yeah, if you if you throw this compressor in here and, yeah, the customer says, well, that compressor's under warranty, so... Okay, so we go order the warranty compressor, and now you're getting hosed with a compressor because guess what? It's under warranty, and uh, the OEM denies it, you know, six months later, and you're on the hook for a compressor, for the second compressor. So this is why you guys want to try to avoid this. Like it's, you know, nobody wants to get a bill for $5,000 that the customer's not going to pay, you know, six months later after the work order's closed out and everything else is done and the contractor gets hosed. They're the only one that gets hosed. But if they would have done their due diligence and checked it out, then yeah. But also on that note, I do not condone buying rebuilt compressors. Every time I get a rebuilt compressor, it generally fails. Especially from one OEM that I'm not, or one manufacturer, I'm not, not going to name the names, but everybody knows who it is. They are quite shady about it, and uh, you know when they when they get a compressor in, they figure out why it failed. They say they tear it down, but I've seen some of the insides of these compressors, and I had one run for five minutes one day. We slapped it in, turned it on, ran for five minutes. Uh, the second time we went to go cycle on, it was pulling 120 amps and tripping a breaker. Broke, broken rod. Either they didn't put a rod cap on all the way or uh, the crank was messed up. But same thing, like 
this is the the third rebuilt compressor in in its place, and the the first two made didn't even make it uh, ten hours. We put an OEM compressor in there, zero issues. Compressor still running to the day this day, you know. So you get what you pay for in the end. I mean, there's a reason you know rebuilt compressors are from these rebuilders are you know a couple a thousand dollars cheaper than an OEM compressor. You with that OEM compressor, you're getting a completely rebuilt compressor. From the ground up, you know, Copeland or Carlisle strips them all the way down, redoes everything, new motors, new cranks, everything. They get reconditioned. They aren't just fixing whatever's wrong with them, slapping new paint on them and sending them out the door. They're actually, you know, physically going through them and you're getting a properly redone compressor. So that's why I'm a big proponent of just buying the right compressor to begin with. I, I, I cannot stand changing, you know, non-OEM compressors. You know, there's be times where customers, you know, buy this and that's where it comes an issue. And then same thing when you guys are dealing with in-house stuff. Like I see this all the time. We get contracted to change a compressor in an in-house. It goes out to bid, you know, three contractors bid on it and one comp- company gets it. Just watch with this because I've seen these in-house companies screw guys because the in-house guy says, okay, yeah, I need this compressor change. Don't worry about it. I already looked at it. Okay, company slaps it in, puts the compressor in. It's dead three days later. Who do you think the, who do you think the uh, customer's mad at? You think they're mad at their own store tech? Nope. Store tech's going to push it off on you. It's going to say, you guys did something wrong, yada, yada, yada. So I always check it over. Even if it's this store tech, you know, condemned it. I'll pull the heads off the compressor. It doesn't take you more than 10 minutes to pull the heads off the compressor. You know, buzz all the bolts off an impact, break it loose. Just look at the heads. Are the valve plates blown? Is the, are the, the pistons messed up? Did they all move? You know, is this compressor actually bad? You know, check it over. Like every compressor that I condemn or I change, if I, if it's a semi-aromatic, it's getting the heads pulled and it's getting inspected. Plain and simple. Because it's going to take me 10 minutes. I'm going to get, you know, get a uh, brief overview of what happened to it so I could try to avoid it doing it. If you're not pulling the heads, you're doing yourself and the customer a disservice because it's going to fail again. I mean, the OEMs, even if it's under warranty, the OEMs are never going to say anything about you pulling the heads. I mean, I think they would rather you pull the heads and figure out why it failed you know, instead of the, them eating another compressor. So that's why it's imperative to pull these things apart and see why they failed. So that way you're not changing another compressor or you know why it failed. So same thing with like the, uh, the, the in-house guys. Like I personally, I don't care what that in-house guy did. I don't care, you know, wh- whatever it is. I'm going to look through the system, make sure that the thing's not going to fail. And if you do find something, bring it to their attention. I mean, I'm sure they would like rather, you know, bring that to their attention than have another compressor fail. And then it starts this finger pointing contest. I'm not a big fan of this. So I would rather just my guys be thorough and look at everything themselves and make sure there's no issues. than just slap a compressor in and call it good. And then three days later, you know, the store tech's all mad again because the compressor's dead. And now, you know, we're eating labor, even though he said he already looked at it. We're eating the labor costs to change a compressor again. So where do we make any money? We didn't sell the compressor. We didn't sell any of the parts. So we sold labor that we barely make any money on. 
and now we're eating it, and I got two. There's two guys are changing it again for free. Who lost here? The store or us? The contractor lost. So that's why it's you know imperative to you know put a little bit more time in here. Say if you got two guys eight hours or two guys uh, twelve hours. So one guy's there for eight hours. One guy's a help helpers there for four hours to get the compressor in and get the compressor out, and then you got a journeyman there to you know start it up you know, test it, check your oil pressure. You should be checking every single time you start a compressor. You should be checking voltage on a new contactor. Make sure you got good voltage. You should be checking tightness of all the electrical connections. You should be testing the safeties. You should be testing the oil pressure. So on a brand new compressor, I will let it run for like 10 minutes. I'll check the oil pressure, you know, crankcase versus oil pump pressure or, or uh, suction versus oil pump pressure. I will... I will check the oil pump pressure on a Copeland, a brand new Copeland. You should have 50 pounds. If it's below 45, there's something wrong with the compressor. Something's up. You don't have enough oil in it. Something's going on. Uh, bits are 45, 50 pounds. Sometimes you'll see them at 40, brand new. If they're lower than that, if they're in the 30s, something's wrong. Stop immediately. Uh, Carlisle's, the new ones are like 30, 35 pounds. The older ones are like 15 to 20 pounds. So, Carlisle's don't have a screen in them, or they do, but it's huge and inaccessible. Basically, you have to flip the compressor over to get to it. Copeland's and Bitzer's both have screens in the front of the oil pumps. So before you could damn a compressor, you know, if, with low oil pressure, that screen needs to be checked and cleaned. Uh, putting an oil pump in a compressor generally doesn't last very long. It'll last a few more months after that. In my in my You'll experience six, seven months, but you know, hey, what if it buys you six, seven months? Slap an oil pump on there if that's what you want to do. That's all up to you. But when you're starting these compressors, you want to check amp draw. Make sure all three legs are drawing the same amps. You know, an amp or two difference here or there. But if you have a high difference between, say, like L1 and L2, you have like a 10 amp difference. Okay, something's wrong here. Well, wiring connections loose, bad wire. Um, there could be loose incoming power to the, the contactor from the breaker or the, the wires feeding the breaker from the distribution block in the rack. Those could be loose, causing problems. So you want to check voltage and amp draw on all three legs. You want to test your verify your safeties. Make sure your oil safety works properly. You want to verify your oil floats. I generally, if I'm changing a compressor with an oil float and it looks terrible, I'm changing oil float. Oil floats are cheap, and uh, if they're like filthy dirty, why waste the time trying to clean them? Just put a new oil float in. And then that one you can clean, and it's a backup. So brand new fresh oil float, clean sight glass where you can see everything. Set the oil float to what the the chart says from Sporlin or Henry or whatever you got. Set the chart, the oil float from the chart. And then once you guys got that, then all you got to do is... Take that and, uh, you know, watch it. If it keeps filling up, is it coming down the oil line? It's got a brand new float. It shouldn't be. Is the oil differential pressure too high and it's blowing the float open? I've seen that a lot. Like the oil differential, the, the spoiling oil floats can't take more than 90 PSI differential before they start blowing open. So I've seen guys jack up differential valves and uh, cause issues. So make sure those differential valves are set properly. Make sure that the ORD is working properly and it's not, you know, stuck shut and causing everything to overpressurize and blow the float open. 
It makes sure the float set properly. It makes sure somebody didn't crush the ball or drop the ball off the adjustment stem. So that's one thing that you guys need to you know really pay attention to because that'll kill a compressor real quick if it's not getting enough oil or if it's getting too much oil. There's that fine fine spot, and then after you check your oil system, okay, the oil's good. Then you're gonna want to check your discharge temps. You know, six inches away from the compressor after it runs for like 20, 30 minutes. Make sure your discharge temps are good, your suction temps are good. You know, that way you're not overheating this compressor. And then overheating is the number one cause of compressor failures, according to Copeland. So you want to make sure six inches away from that compressor, you're less than like 200 degrees. If you aren't, then you need to check your suction temp coming back. And if it's a low temp rack and there's no frost on that on that suction header or that, that back of the compressor, I'll tell you right now, your super heat's too high. And you're just causing issues. Get get that suction header frosted up. Get the end bells frosted up. All that means is below 32 degrees. If you're running a minus 20 rack, you should be at you know zero to you know five degrees on the suction header. It's going to be have ice on it. It should. You know that that otherwise you're going to have high superheat. And high superheat makes high discharge temps. High discharge temps decrease capacity or uh, condenser sizing. And then it just drives up compression ratios. So the lower you keep that compression ratio, the better and more efficient that compressor is going to be. Same thing with uh, lowering the suction set points. If you start lowering suction set points, guess what? That's going to drive up compression ratio on the rack. And when you drive up compression ratio, you drive up heat. And that's going to make your discharge hotter. So keeping that suction temp up as high as you can, saturation temp up as high as you can, is going to help with the efficiency of that rack, and it's also going to help reduce the discharge compress discharge temps on those compressors tremendously. So that's why you guys really need to pay attention and make sure these uh, racks aren't floated down and they're actually floating up. So, and then first, you know, the last thing is just verifying that everything is you know cleaned up tight. All the connections are tight. Your electrical connections are tight. Use a torque wrench torquing screwdriver you make sure everything is tight on all of them make sure your rotation's correct don't just uh you know slap a scroll in and not verify the rotation because if you don't it'll end up uh i've seen compressors run backwards for a while like i found one the other day that was running backwards for a month and a half and uh i got it to reset i mean is it gonna last long probably not i mean you they say they burn up right away but it was still running. It had a discharge temp of 240 degrees and was going off an internal. When I reset it, I mean, the discharge came down to 190. But, I mean, it's probably not going to last much longer than that. So, that's one thing. I mean, that's that's a that's a bonehead, uh, you know, beginning mistake to miss. So, when you start up a, a scroll or a screw, it's imperative they go the right way. A screw will annihilate itself. I mean, you may get to bump it for a split second. If you don't see your suction and discharge pressures go away from each other and they kind of stay the same, it's going backwards. Shut it down immediately, flip the legs. Uh, that's why a rotation tester is a good good tool to have. You know, just make sure it's a properly set up rotation tester and uh, it doesn't explode when you put it to 460. But, I mean, testing rotation on those before you, you know, set it up. You know, even though you pulled the compressor apart and say it's a scroll and somebody condemned it, and you hook the wires back up the exact way it was doesn't mean that it got flipped in the contactor or somewhere else and that's why the compressor actually failed so just you know 
you'll hear a scroll. It'll sound different. So just make sure it's you're rotating the correct way. And the other thing for recips is make sure all the recips are rotating the same way on the rack. Make sure you know you don't have one going L1, L3, L2, because what will happen is those motors are going different directions. This can cause pulsations on the rack and cause it to vibrate and break lines. You don't see this a lot, but I've found a couple racks where they kept breaking lines and nobody could find anything wrong with the compressors, no vibration issues. And randomly, they, these frequency vibrations from compressors running at different uh, rotations were causing frequency issues and they were causing frequency line breaks. So they were causing lines to break on the racks. So that's one other thing to keep in mind. Make sure everything's rotating the correct direction. But, that, all right, guys, thanks for listening. Have a nice night. Hey, guys, welcome to the Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Compass, flying solo today. So we're going to go over uh, case feeding issues today, guys. Mostly uh, case and valve feeding issues. I had a few guys reach out to me with some with some issues with some cases, distributor-related and or feeding-related. So... I want to kind of start off by uh, going through this. So, guys, we're going to talk, be talking about uh, feeding issues in cases and coils tonight. So, when I'm talking about feeding issues, I'm talking about uh, TXDs that aren't feeding properly. You're not getting proper uh, flow through the coil. You're getting uneven distributor uh, patterns. You're getting a lot of frost buildup. You're not getting uh, proper uh, TD out of your coil. So we're going to go over on how to troubleshoot that and how to, you know, look through it. So, all right, guys, with a with a TXV, obviously you have to have proper liquid flow to the valve. Now, we're assuming once we're going through this that everything, we have liquid up to the valve, the strainer's clean, the valve's clean, and you have odd superheat settings, you have odd frost patterns on the coils, you can't get temperature out of them. You're icing up weird. So that's what we're going to be going over tonight. So first things first, if you're looking at, uh, you know, feeding issues, you know, as a visual, you know, looking at the coil, looking at how, how it's feeding, looking at the valve, seeing how it's frosted. <clears throat> Not every, you know, feed, valve that's frosted is a feeding issue. So as you're looking at this, you just need to, you know, look at it, you know, after a defrost and then after it's ran for a while and see how, how it's building up frost. Are you building up frost on all the tubes evenly? Is there tubes that are frosting more and tubes that are frosting less? That's an issue because you could be, you know, feeding more on, on certain tubes and not on other tubes. And likewise, if you have tubes that aren't frosting at all, that's a, a sign that you have a plug tube or... You have something plugged on that on that run where you're not feeding. So when we, we go, start going through this, what I like to do is I like to, you know, get everything running, you know, let it run for a while, let it defrost, and then let it, you know, run again. So that way you can see the frost clear and you could see how, how it looks, you know, after it runs for a little bit and, you know, check your superheat. Now, I, I had this and somebody reached out to me about the same thing. I had a case where the TD was off. I was running like a, a minus, you know, 26 degree coil 
and I was supposed to get a minus 10 degree discharge air and I was supposed to have like a you know five or six de- or six degree TD on this thing and I'm way over set point or I'm like running like a minus eight and I can't get anything more out of it. My superheat's like two or three degrees. I have superheat. Like I'm getting superheat through the coil. Now, as I'm checking on the suction line, I have good suction superheat. It's three degrees. You know, everything's, you know, proper. It's, it's 404, so it's not even a high glide refrigerant. So as you're going through this, I start looking at distributors. It's a small case. It has, you know, four distributor tubes. It's feeding into the back of the coil. Now, on those four distributor tubes, I had like a 10 degree difference from the top top evaporator pass to the bottom evaporator pass. So I had a 10 degree difference in my distributor tubes, just in my tubes feeding the coil. So right then and there, I knew something's you know, wrong. You should be within a degree or two on your distributor tubes on a, on a properly distributed coil. That distributor is there to evenly distribute refrigerant through that coil. So it comes out as a liquid vapor mix out of the uh, TXV. It, it comes out as a liquid vapor mix, hits a distributor orifice, is forced through the orifice or a venturi cone. A venturi cone is just, it, it literally is a cone and it's rifled. So the refrigerant goes around the uh, cone and the rifling and then evenly distributes to all the distributor tubes. Now the distributor does the same thing on a smaller scale with just an orifice in there. And it's orifice, it's for all the liquid vapor mix is forced through an orifice, then it hits a cone, and then it goes out towards the tubes. Now, this causes the liquid vapor mix coming from the expansion valve to evenly distribute through the tubes. Otherwise, if you were just to you know, inject liquid vapor mix into the distributor tubes without the, the orifice there, what would happen is your bottom tubes would get all the liquid and your top tubes would get all the vapor because liquid's heavier and it's going to want to fall. It's going to take the pass the least, uh, least, least resistance, which is going to be your bottom tubes. So that liquid's going to fall out. And now what that would cause is you would have uneven distributor or uneven case loading. So the top of your coil would be starving. The bottom of your coil would be flooding. So you would not be using your whole your whole coil. So the way that you know everybody solves this is by using a distributor orifice and a distributor. And what they do is they force that liquid vapor mix to the nozzle and then they allow it to you know separate on the cone and evenly distribute through all the tubes instead of just dropping out the bottom tubes. So that way you, you now have a proper you know volume of flow through each pass of the coil. Now you only need a distributor on a multi-pass coil. If you have a single-pass coil, you're not going to have a distributor. You're just going to have an in-and-out line. Usually, you only see this on super small stuff, like super small service cases, small evaporators, and you know little reach-ins. But like most of the stuff we're going to see is going to have distributors. I mean, it could have, you know, five or six, you know, distributor passes on there. Now, that being said. If you're properly feeding, you know, the coil, you should have even loading through all your tubes. Now, on this particular coil, we were starving the top tubes and the bottom tubes were flooding more. 
but mine was the point where like I had you know quite a bit of difference. So on this one, I believe we had a restriction on that pass. So either at the distributor, and unfortunately somebody like halfway melted this brass distributor already trying to pull it apart. So I didn't pull this one apart. I'm waiting on a, a distributor nozzle for it because I don't want to risk you know them losing the case because I go down and sweat this and I mean there's already got chunk missing out of it. It's either that or we have a crushed tube and a coil, which I've had in the past. I've had a uh, coil ice up a bunch of times, and, you know, ice is very destructive. You know, it could build up enough where it actually crushes the evaporator tubes. I've seen it a lot in walk-ins where they are habitual icers, and it ends up crushing the evaporator tubes, and then you end up losing flow through there. So you'll have one whole section of flow. Like, remember, these are multi-path coils. So if you lose one coil, if you lose one tube, you lost, you know, say there's four passes, you lost one quarter of the coil capacity. So, yeah, you, you would still, you still could make superheat. I mean, especially if it's in a box with a bunch of other coils, you could still make superheat because the other coils are going to be pushing that liquid through. You just are not going to get your TD off of this coil. That's why like TD is such an important measurement from knowing what the case manufacturer design TD is to what you're actually having. Now, the way we find TD, you know, you look at the case manufacturer's uh, literature, say it's Hussman, and they say this case runs at a plus 25 degree evaporator coil and has a plus 30 degree discharge here. So your TD would be your plus 25 and your plus 30. So you're going to subtract your evaporator temperature away from your discharge air temp. That's going to give you your coil TD. So that would give us five degrees. If it's a plus 25 degree evaporator, plus 30 degree discharge air, you're going to have a five degree TD. Now, that five degree TD, if you're getting that five degree TD, if your superheat set and you're getting that five degree TD, that's great. Now, if you have a high TD, meaning like you're, you're running uh, – uh, plus 25 degree evaporator and you're getting a 35 degree uh, let's say a 35 degree discharge air so that's a 10 degree TD the TD's double you're in a 10 degree TD out of there and your superheat is low you have an evaporator problem you're 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 not you're not moving enough refrigerant through that evaporator you 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 you're not or you're not picking up enough heat with that evaporator so you have a flow, refrigerant flow issue through that evaporator. So something's wrong. Now, if you had high superheat and high TD, I'm inclined to believe you're not feeding enough refrigerant to that coil. Meaning it's, it's, it's doing more work than it, than it can because you're not feeding it enough refrigerant. You may have a liquid feed issue. You may have a, a, a TXV issue. I've had uh, plenty of uh, plug distributor orifices especially at the bullseye store. I don't know what it is floating around in that oil when it breaks down from overheating, but they end up plugging distributor orifices with uh, like burnt up oil. I mean, some of these distributor orifices are very small. Depending on what you're working on, I mean, it could be the size of a ballpoint pen or it could be you know quite large. So generally, if I pull a valve apart and the valve's clean and I know I have good liquid feed. The valve's clean. The pins move freely. You know, I pull the, the, the TXV pins and they move freely. 
then I'm probably going to unsweat it before I change a valve. And if I do change a valve, I'm going to look in there and verify that that orifice is clean. Now, if it's in an auxiliary side connector, it's going to be in there a little bit. So just verify for your own self that that orifice is clean when you change a valve. I check it on every time I change it. Uh, if I have to change a valve, somebody writes it up, which is not very often. I check that orifice in there to make sure it's 100% clean. Now, if you do have a wrong size orifice, I mean, I've talked to Harry Moy at Hill Phoenix about stuff like this. Like, the guy's really good about it. I mean, orifice sizing is kind of a kind of a pain. A lot of manufacturers use kind of off-the-wall stuff when they do it. Like, I've heard that 407 or 448 is like 150 to 200% oversized. Like, they're doing that to get the, the proper flow through the uh, coils, which is why you see a lot more frosting on there and some, like, feeding issues. They seem to oversize the nozzles a little bit. Now, usually they size these nozzles for like a 35 pound pressure drop is what they're what they're they're shooting for. So they will size the nozzle in the tubes for a 35 psi pressure drop. That's why you have to have an equalized expansion valve. That's according to the Sporlin literature. Now, when they size these these distributors, Sporlin has a really good uh, the sizing chart for it. Like they have an actual like program. You can look online to size the distributors, but like case manufacturer stuff, you're better off going to Hill Phoenix or Husband to figure out what orifice is supposed to be in there. Hill Phoenix usually paints a lot of times. Like I see it on the multi-decks, they paint the uh, distributor with what, if it's white, it's one orifice. If it's green, it's another orifice. Blue is another orifice, what they use. Now, Sporlin does have a chart somewhere. Uh that you could, you know, drill orifices out to. Like they, I mean, I've had to do it on stores. We had to do it on a bunch of uh, retrofits. We had to actually take and use machine drill bits and drill out orifices, you know, to give us the proper next size orifice. Obviously, we can't get like 35, 40 orifices this quick. So, so what they ended up doing was they ended up drilling out the orifice so that we could use it on, on the new refrigerant and it was going to give us a proper, you know, percentage of feeding. So we ended up drilling out the orifices. Now, I'll give you guys some tips on getting these things out. Like if you don't clean all the silf loss out, like of the a, if it's in an ASC, it's a nightmare to get these things out. What I usually do is I will screw an easy out in to the orifice. So I'll take an easy out, tap it in a little bit and just, you know, Use my service wrench, get it to bite. That way, I can just pull the easy out while I'm heating it up, and you know, pull it right out. The easy out, you know, it's reverse thread, so it's going to bite in there, and you can pull it out. That that is the best way I found to you know change orifices. There's also a C clip in a lot of them, so make sure that you get the C clip out. So two picks usually like is what I use to get the C clip out, and then I will take and use the easy out thread the easy out in there and I will pull the orifice out after I heat it up. So that, that is the easiest way to change them. Now, the other thing that I found has been an issue, especially I see like a, every couple startups, I have a coil or a case with it where they actually fill that one of the distributor tubes with solder when they're, when they're silk silver and them in, there's not very much, you know, space and that tube goes in there. You get, you know, silf, silver solder or, you know, silf loss in there. They'll 
heat it up too much. And I mean, that's a 3 tube. It's going to act like a cap tube. So it'll draw the solder up into the tube and block it. Now, I, what I'll generally do if I have a tube not feeding at all, okay, I, I will generally start, I'll unsweat that tube. But be careful because even though the distributor inside the nozzle looks clean, it I've seen it sucked up a tube like an inch and a half. So what I'll generally do is take a control screwdriver and ram it down in there and make sure the tube's clean. If a tube is clean and the distributor's clean, what I will generally do then is blow into it with CO2 or nitrogen and see if I could blow through or if I get back pressure. If I get back pressure, then I'm going to unsweat the tube from the coil and see if I if the tube is plugged. If the tube's plugged, it's easier just to change it. But usually, if it's not within like the first inch or two on the distributor, there's an issue with the coil. Now, we've had a couple coils where this turned into an absolute nightmare and uh, took a couple guys to figure this out. We had a coil where they miscircuited it. So, meaning like the U-bends. Okay, so it had like four runs on it. And then the U-bends are all on an angle. So, the, the top tube goes to the next tube down on an angle and then vice versa, vice versa on an angle. Now this is how it's circuited so that, that you don't just have, you know, your first pass at the top is not just your, you know, first pass all the way through it, you know, serpentines to the coil. So you get maximum efficiency on the entire coil. So that way you don't have the top of the coil taking all the heat and the bottom of the coil taking no heat and then the bottom of the coil is going to frost up while the top of the coil starves. So they serpentine these coils, you know, all through each other. Now there's a piping diagram for this that you can get from Heatcraft or Hussman or Hill Phoenix of how it's a shop drawing of how these U-bends are supposed to lay out. We had it where they all they did was they were one tube off and it shifted all the tubes and ended up deadheading two tubes. So two runs of this coil were deadheaded. So this coil was essentially cut in half. The efficiency was. And unfortunately, it was in a, a room with a bunch of other coils. So they picked up the load for the most part. But, you know, every, you know, so often this coil, it, this room would struggle a little bit. Or during a defrost, it would struggle a little bit. And this coil, no matter what, wouldn't make superheat because... When it would have a load on it, it was it couldn't it couldn't absorb the heat fast enough and flood the coil because it only had two two passes working. Now, when everything else was working, it would make superheat because when all the other coils were running and the box didn't have a huge load, it would make superheat because the other coils picked up enough of the load. Those two other running passes you know, made, made it all work. But like you could see the frost lines were wrong. You only had two tubes out of four frosted because two of them were deadheaded. <laughs> and weren't, weren't performing any work. They weren't, you know, they weren't pulling any heat out of the room because they had no flow. So that, that's generally the way I'll go look at these. I'll look at the, how it's frosted and then I'll start taking temp drops on the coil inlet and the coil outlets so i'll throw like a a cooper thermometer is real good for this 
something real tiny. The field piece one works real good with it. It'll go down to three sixteenths. So what I'll do is I'll just clamp them all and I'll just check them, you know, one by one. Okay. I'll watch it. You know, this one's feeding. It's, you know, 36 degrees. This one's 35 degrees. Oh, this one's 32 degrees. Okay. Well, 32 and 36 is, you know, a four degree difference. Why do I have a four degree difference? Either a, we need to adjust the superheat a little more and flood the coil because the more you flood that coil, the better liquid vapor mix you're going to get through that distributor. So you need to have a good low superheat going through there. Or B, if it's already flooded, then I probably have a distributor issue. So at that point, I'm going to see what orifice is in there, and I'm going to call the manufacturer to see what it should have and go from there. Now, low-profile coils, I see this a lot. You'll have one side of the coil ice up, one side of the coil be, you know, frost, frosted, you know, clean. Well, the reason the one side of the coil ice is up is because it's getting all the liquid refrigerant and the other side's getting all the vapor. So what's happening is that side of the coil is running colder than the other side. One side's doing more work than the other. This is very common with low profile coils and we'll go over a couple things that you could do to fix this. So first things first, Heatcraft even recommends it. Like your superheat has to be down to like three degrees in the low profile coils. You need to have a good liquid vapor mix in there. Now, that comes by lowering your refrigerant or the your superheat of the ref, of the refrigerant, because once you lower that the superheat down, you're forcing more liquid vapor through there, and you're going to more evenly feed those coils. So you have a coil on the one side and coil on the other side. You're going to more evenly feed those coils. Now, a lot of guys like to run them like you know ten degrees, nine degrees. They're not going to feed properly, especially the new refrigerants. They have to be like three to four degrees of superheat in order to feed properly. The other thing I see a lot is it get messed up a lot and it's kind of hard in a low profile coil so you don't have a lot of room is the distributor should be pointing down. The distributor should always be pointing down. So this way you get maximum liquid vapor mix and then it distributes nice and evenly. When it's on its side, you'll see this on cases a lot. When the distributor is on its side, like it normally would be in a case, is you end up getting weird weird feeding. You, your bottom tubes will get more liquid than your top tubes. It always ends up like that. So what I'll generally do is I'll try to bend it a little bit. You'll get a little bit of a tilt to it so that it, it runs a little better. We've had a couple coils where we've actually taken the distributor and we've completely like bent it 90 degrees. And then we use a 90, uh, a 90 and a short piece of pipe to allow it to be pointing down. So we repipe the distributor. So right out of the valve with a piece of pipe and then a uh, street 90. So that way we could dump right into the distributor and it could be pointing down and we could be pouring liquid into the distributor and feeding it properly. You know, that, that has helped on some bigger low profile coils. That's helped distribute that liquid a lot better. And it has helped, you know, keep down on the icing issues and the, the TD issues on those coils. So that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, lowering your superheat and then making sure that you actually have the proper size valve for your application and the proper size distributor for your application. Because like we talked about before, if you double the TD of a coil, you almost double the refrigerant capacity. 
So if that coil was designed for a 10 degree TD and you move it to a 15 degree TD, so at 10 degree TD, it may do 10,000 BTUs. It may do 15,000 at a 15 degree TD. So it almost doubles your refrigerant capacity. Now, if your TD changes, you may need a larger valve and a larger distributor orifice. So that, that's one thing to keep in, in mind when you guys are doing this. You may be running one set of conditions and it was designed for A and A, a doesn't exist. You know, we're running B conditions. The, the system has changed. The design has changed. Your TDs changed. You may need a bigger distributor orifice to carry that load. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you guys are, you know, checking this stuff. You know, you need to look at the actual design of what it was supposed to versus what it's doing now. Because if you can't feed that evaporator, you know, efficiently and with enough refrigerant, you're never going to be able to pull the load down. So the other thing is the ASC. So when you're when you're putting these distributor orifices and if you're running hot gas, you have to move that distributor orifice you know in between the valve and the ASC so it's going to be on the outlet of the ASC at times you just need to make sure when you, when you're doing this you don't have any solder BBs we've had this problem before is uh guys will burn these things in and a lot of guys struggle when they silver solder for some reason and what ends up happening is they get a solder BB and th th I've had this one get me before the case will run fine, it'll run fine, it'll run fine. All of a sudden, it trends warm a little bit. And then you end up out there, you throw it through a defrost, it runs fine, it runs fine, it runs fine because that back pressure, you know, knocks the solder BB out of the hole. And then it runs fine. And then all of a sudden, like three days later, the case is trending warm again. And there's a solder BB literally floating around in there, causing you not to feed on one, one tube. And that one tube may be enough where it throws off the TD of the case and, you know, throws an alarm or makes it, uh, it trend warm. Now, all Sporland nozzles are going to be stamped. So on the actual nozzle, it'll be stamped with like a, a letter or a code of what it is. Some of the bigger Sporland nozzles will actually be threaded with uh, screw extract their uh, screw hole threads. So like a J nozzle will have like a 4-40 thread. A G and up nozzle is going to have a 632 thread. So you can actually thread a screwdriver or a screw in there and pull these nozzles out. Uh, the smaller nozzles, you're not going to have that. Your best way to do it with, is with an easy out, like I was saying. Now, the way that these are all, all set up, so when you're sizing these, so if you look at a, a Sporland table, you're going to have distributor uh, tube capacities in tons. So they're going to do the tubes, and then you also have to size the, the, the tubes for length, and you have to also size the tubes for um, your load, and then you also have to size the distributor orifice. So if you look at like the Sporland charts for 20-10, which is the, uh, the distributor orifice catalog, so if you look at it, they have it. They have all your refrigerants listed up here, just like you would size an expansion valve. Okay. Now you have uh, tube on the left hand side. You have tube uh, diameters, so three sixteenths, quarter, five sixteenths, and three eighths. Three eighths would be massive. 
So generally it's three sixteenths and quarter what we see. And they have evaporator capacities. So if you look at you know, R22 at a 20 degree evaporator, a 3 sixteenths tube is good for 0 0.30 of a ton. Okay. Now you have a correction factor for length. Okay. So at 12 inches, that gives you 1.36. So at 18 inches, it's 1.16. So you're going to multiply that capacity of that tube by the distributor uh, tube correction factor. So you have, so say at, at a plus 20, it's 316 is good for 0 0.30. You're going to multiply that by, say at 12 inches, you're going to multiply that by 1.36. That's going to increase your tonnage range of that of that actual tube. So, as the tube gets longer, the the tonnage it could carry is, is less. So, they rate them all at a thirty inch tube, which would be a point one. So, obviously, most evaporators aren't going to have a thirty inch tube. So, you want all these tubes to be equal. You don't want any of the tubes to be shorter or longer. So, what you end up having to do with this is curl up tubes. Or bend them in a, in a in a in a hoop. That's why you see all these evaporators with these distributors. You see them bent in, in circles because all the tubes have to be the same size. You may be going right into a pass, like right out the distributor, and maybe need like a two inch piece of pipe. But if you were to do that, that piece of pipe would have less to, less uh, of a restriction on there, and it would cause it to feed that that smaller section of pipe more than the others. So everything has to be equal. So if you're ever changing tubes, you need to you need to make it as equal as possible. Obviously, like some of that, you know, is kind of hard, but you have to make it as e even and equal as possible. Now, when you start looking at distributor capacities, so if you look in this in this Sporlin chart, they list them say R22 at a plus 20 degree evaporator. If you look at this a one-ton nozzle is going to be a one is one ton. So a three-quarter is three-quarter ton. They listed it like a, a plus 20-degree evaporator. So if you look through this, and there's all kinds of you know tonnage ratings on here to get you close. Now, the thing you got to watch is case manufacturers will, will change you know, orifices in here to get a little more flow on, on these 400 series refrigerants. The other thing with this whole uh, distributor sizing is you need to have, there's a pressure drop versus load rating factor. So you need to have an actual, you need to check after you get your tubes picked out and your tube lengths, you need to check your loading of that distributor nozzle. So if it's 50% loaded and it's, 134A, it's going to tell you what the pressure drop should be on here. Now, you want to have a 35-pound drop from, it's usually 10 on the tubes and 15 to 20 on your distributor orifice. So that's going to give you 30 pounds, 35 pounds of pressure drop to that orifice. That is a rule of thumb with you know, older refrigerants. It's probably less now with these 400 series refrigerants. And all these manufacturers have been like really closed, you know, doored with how, they, how they're how they just sizing their orifices in cases. 
with cases, you're better off going to the manufacturer because you don't want to be redesigning the case. Now, coils, you're going to look at what Heatcraft is sending out. Generally, Heatcraft will send out a couple orifices with a coil. You'll get, you know, uh, an orifice for 404, an orifice for 410, or, four, I'm sorry, you know, 448, 449, slash R22, maybe for 134A, you get a, a different orifice in there. You need to look at the chart on that the, the Heatcraft sends out to make sure you're selecting the proper orifice. All these Sporlin charts, this is more so for engineering, but you could also, you know, do quick, you know, checks with it. Me personally, I like the Sporlin sizing calculator that they have that you could check it. That way you don't have to go through and do all this math. You could literally go on the Sporlin sizing uh, calculator and go through and check it and then check how much it's loaded up because you don't want to be too underloaded because it's not going to distribute properly. And then you don't want to be too overloaded because then you're also going to have distributor issues. All right, guys, thanks for listening and have a nice night.